Welcome to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a quick and informative analysis of today's top issues from University of Michigan faculty. My name is Andrew Alt. I'm the Dow Corning Assistant Professor of Chemistry in uh, the Department of Chemistry in the College of Literature, Sciences, and the Arts. So my research focuses on aerosols. Um, I've been studying aerosol chemistry and physics for about 16 years since I was an undergrad and I did my bachelor's, doctoral, and uh, postdoctoral research all on that before starting at U of M in 2013. And over the last seven years, I've been uh, at a research group where we've really focused on trying to understand aerosols, which are uh, tiny microscopic bits of either liquid droplets or solid pieces floating around in the atmosphere. And if you imagine the end of uh, one of your hairs, they're about maybe a hundred times smaller in diameter than the end of one of your hairs. So these are tiny things that we can't see, but end up having huge impacts on all around us, um, both in the outdoor atmosphere and more recently, as we'll talk about today, in the indoor atmosphere. It's important to think that aerosols can come from all sorts of different sources. Uh, we can have aerosols coming from everything from if you've seen smoke from a fire or dust storms, uh, seen haze events like uh, such as you know in uh, Beijing or Delhi, or if you go back 50 years in the U.S., you know in L.A. and even you know the London smog of the 1950s. And so these are all aerosols. And um, the way it relates to COVID is that. In addition to having all these other sources of aerosols, we as humans can be sources of aerosols. And there's essentially three ways that uh, the COVID um, virus can be transmitted. And that is uh, related to sneezing or droplets, uh, surfaces, which we've uh, heard a lot about, particularly in the early days of the pandemic, uh, sometimes called fomite uh, transmission. And then aerosols are the third one. And when we kind of got started, you know, learning about transmission and you know, all the impacts this pandemic was having back in March, we didn't really, we knew that all three played a role, but we didn't know which ones were playing the largest roles and which ones weren't. And so as an aerosol researcher, where I've been really interested in this is um, we've been realizing as time has gone on more and more that aerosols are an important uh, source of transmission. And so that's uh, what a lot of my focus has been on thinking about over the last few months. So one of the things that's really important to keep in mind is um, that when it comes to aerosol transmission, uh, this has actually been a topic of a bit of uh, controversy. I was recently uh, one of 239 uh, aerosol researchers from around the world that wrote an open letter to the World Health Organization that essentially said uh, that they needed to consider aerosol transition more carefully than they had been. Uh, it's actually sort of from a historical perspective, fascinating that a lot of uh, the medical world's uh, view of aerosols versus droplets actually is based on research that's over a hundred years old and to be perfectly frank, hasn't been updated to the degree that it should. And so those of us that study aerosols, particularly there's uh, been some great uh, MD PhDs that study both aerosol uh, properties as well as the, you know, the medical consequences, including the two folks who uh, were the leads on that letter uh, to the WHO. And um, more and more we've been realizing is that these outdated um, sort of perceptions of how aerosol transmission can happen uh, may be leading us to not giving the best recommendations we could for everything from um, just general spread within the population, but specifically thinking about uh, universities and schools reopening in the fall. So uh, this letter was led by uh, Lydia Murawski over uh, in Australia, as well as Donald Milton at the University of Maryland. And uh, this peer-reviewed um, letter that we wrote uh, was called, It's Time for, to Address Airborne Transmission of COVID-19. 
a lot of the sort of medical um, wisdom over the years related to airborne transmission has been focused on work from back around 1910 to 1915. And um, we know a lot more about aerosols and a lot more about airborne transmission of diseases now than we did then. And unfortunately, there's been a bit of a chasm between sort of what the folks that study aerosols know versus what the doctors who, you know, are learning about this, you know, um, but it isn't their focus area, what they know. And so what we were trying to get across in that letter is that aerosols stay airborne a lot longer than uh, this idea of six feet, uh, frankly, that has been pushed uh, very heavily. And so uh, what we we're trying to get across is that, in fact, um, a lot of the virus containing aerosol that are up there can stay in the air for both uh, longer distances than six feet, but also for longer time frames than um, dro large droplets like you might see when someone sneezes. And so uh, it's actually been uh, something pretty gratifying that after we published this letter, it was written up in the New York Times and the LA Times and Washington Post, um, got widespread attention essentially. Um, and we've since, Dr. Anthony Fauci has met with some of the co-authors um, as well, trying to learn more about this. Um, and the key takeaways I think that we're all trying to get across are that um, this is an exposure risk that perhaps the medical community didn't fully appreciate to the extent that uh, we need to if we're gonna be effective at fighting this disease. And so there's been more and more papers coming out showing everything from uh, transmission in hospitals, not just when you're putting a respirator in, which is what a lot of the medical folks thought was the main time you'd have aerosol transmission, but even just from talking um, within patient rooms, uh, if somebody's infected, they can be transmitting just uh, from that sense. And we've seen things like choir practices where you've had extensive transmission, even when people were socially distanced, um, or even on airplanes with people wearing masks. One person, uh, there was a paper that's been peer reviewed that came out about a flight uh, in the early days from Wuhan, uh, where somebody, uh, they were able to do an epidemiological study and show that one person wearing their mask just below their nose, while the other folks, uh, other folks nearby who were infected uh, were able to transmit it. And so it's um, an important reminder that, you know, we say things like, you know, six feet and, you know, try not to be too close to other people. But really the best thing, I mean, the more distance you have, it's not a step function. It's not just, you know, a perfect drop off at six feet. If you can do nine, nine's better. If you can do 12, 12 is better than that. And if we can, you know, as much as we're all social creatures and beings and want to be around each other, the more we can stay apart from one another over these next few months, the better off we're all going to be. So one of the things that we um, all went through here at the university is that research was shut down for about three months. Uh, I'm in the chemistry building and we were one of the first buildings to reopen in late May after having shut down in mid-March. And so for three months, we all adapted to, you know, living and working in an entirely different environment until we could get a better handle on essentially what the risks were and how to mitigate them for researchers coming back to, uh, to work. And I think one thing that I'll give UM credit for is that as uh, we came back online, uh, Michigan was among the most stringent with respect to the protocols that as researchers we had to go through. And uh, when I compare it to what my friends and colleagues at other universities have gone through, um, they, uh, frankly, there was a lot of uncertainty and I would say Michigan was very deliberate in how they did it. Were we a little slower? Yeah, but I think that that has led to, at least in the chemistry building, we haven't had any you know, positive cases yet. So I think people have been uh, very serious about it, which um, I'm hoping will translate to uh, the fall semester's hybrid model.
I think with respect to the fact that a large fraction of our credit hours are gonna be online, that's honestly the safest thing we can do. Um, the best way we can fight transmission is simply not being around each other at the moment and when we have to be wearing masks. But if we cannot be around each other, that is the most surefire way to make sure that we're not spreading this virus. And one thing I wanna make, uh, you know, I think as we're learning more and more, and this, I know this is in the news on a daily basis now, is that even if you, know, you don't get extremely sick or you know, un unfortunately many folks have died from this uh, virus, but even uh, cases where you know, it's mild or you're asymptomatic uh, still can have really scary long-term health effects. And so I think as we're, you know, we're just learning about what those are gonna be, but early evidence that we're seeing really says that um, we need to do everything we can to prevent the spread of this virus uh, that we can do. Being a scientist by training, I think one of the most challenging things that uh, we're trying to figure out how to handle um, our lab courses. You know, there's some training that we do that simply is not going to be the same in per, um, over online as it would be in person. Uh, and so I know that in chemistry, a lot of thought has gone into how we can do these in a more socially distanced manner, you know, alternating weeks in the lab. There's, you know, all sorts of different ideas, you know, many of which have already, you know, come quite a ways and others are still being developed. I don't think we're being realistic if we think it's going to be identical to other semesters that folks have had either, you know, here on campus, but I think we can still deliver as effective an education as we can given the current circumstances. And of course, above all else is protecting both the student, the faculty and the staff's health, uh, which we have to, you know, make our top priority. The delivery of education this fall is going to be much better than uh, what we were able to do in terms of delivering our courses and uh, transferring knowledge in the winter. I mean, we were essentially all diving into the deep end at the same time uh, without much preparation. And so I think, you know, many of us, uh, I'll fully admit, you know, we're just trying to figure out how, how do I do this in, <laughs> during the end, you know, last few weeks of the winter semester. And having had now, you know, the summer, um, we have had a lot of time to prepare, uh, a lot more time to sort of think about and prepare. But I, I'll also say is that we're, this is you know, evolving, it's such a rapidly evolving situation with COVID that we're still, things are still changing on a daily basis and we're still trying to figure out how we're gonna do things. So I think um, practically speaking, we're still gonna be adapting throughout this whole semester, but I think we're starting from a place where at least we've had a little bit of time to think carefully and do some planning before jumping into um, the semester that we're gonna have this fall and winter semester. If I had a few recommendations, this goes back to sort of my aerosol physics training, and I actually have taught a course here at UM multiple times on aerosol uh, physics. A um, couple things that I think just for uh, to keep in mind are first and foremost, um, the smaller particles that we can't see, those are the ones that get deepest into our lungs. And so uh, just by virtue of the size that they are. And so um, when we think about some of the protections that we're taking, um, things like face shields, or plexiglass barriers. If you don't have a mask on, those aren't going to do a thing for you, frankly. Um, if you, I, I was traveling recently and uh, stopped at a rest area, and I saw, you know, a number of uh, people who were wearing face shields with no mask, and it broke my heart a bit because I knew that they were trying to do the right thing for their health, but they were taking steps that we hadn't, you know, effectively communicated to scientists weren't really going to do much. The face shield may help with uh, droplet transmission. But far more of the risk is from aerosol and smaller droplets that are gonna go right around that face shield if you're not wearing a mask. Similar with plexiglass barriers. I sometimes go into convenience stores, you know, if I'm you know, filling up on gas or something, 
and I'll see a clerk sitting with a mask around their neck where, you know, behind a plexiglass shield, and they probably think, oh, I'm behind the shield, I'm fine. But, you know, frankly, if you don't have the mask on and you're in an indoor environment with other people, you're at risk. And so I hope that my colleagues all keep in mind that, you know, yeah, no one loves having a mask on their face. I don't think anyone's going to pretend that that's, you know, a pleasant thing. But at the same time, it is the thing that we know is the most effective at protecting uh, both ourselves as well as those around us, um, particularly since a lot of the virus that people are, you know, have come out from talking and singing and other things like that um, is going to be captured by the mask. But the mask also protects you from uh, at least some of the larger things that are coming in. Wearing a mask when you're in an indoor environment is absolutely the best thing you can do. Um, right now, it's a nice time of year weather-wise. When possible, the ventilation, ventilation, ventilation. That would be my other thing to really harp on. If you can have a window open, have a window open. If you can, you know, increase the airflow in the room that you're in, you know, with your heater or air conditioner or whatever, anything you can do to keep the air from being stagnant uh, the, is the better you're going to be for your health. So I think uh, that's one general piece I'd have um, of advice for folks. I think with respect to the students, um, and this is true of faculty and staff as well, is I mean, there's a personal responsibility here. I think sometimes, you know, uh, we have this idea that, oh, this only impacts older people um, or, you know, middle-aged people, but uh, it can impact younger people. And uh, again, as we're learning more about these long-term health effects, you know, we're seeing things like, you know, strokes in people, you know, in their 30s and 40s, we're seeing some of these heart impacts on you know, people in their 20s, we are still learning so much so quickly that um, I worry about people thinking that, oh, well, this doesn't impact my particular age set, and so I don't need to take as many steps. But really, if you're in an indoor environment, wearing a mask is something you're doing for not just for everyone else, but also for you. I think one thing I want uh, that I see sometimes, at least on my social media, when I go back and you know look at what my friends from high school are saying, is I see people saying like, "Oh, well, the scientists are saying different things than they were, you know, in March or April." You know, they don't know what they're talking about because they keep changing what they're saying. Uh, when in fact, we're learning as we go, and that's how science is supposed to work. We are getting more and more um, knowledgeable with respect to how this uh, disease is transmitted, what we, steps we can take. You know, we were for a while, uh, you know, wiping down our groceries, you know, uh, you know with uh, disinfectant wipes when we got home. When we, you know, since realized that maybe that isn't as necessary, although please don't take that as a message to stop washing hands and distancing. Those are absolutely the best things, are very important things to be doing. Please wash your hands. But also, uh, I would say, you know, we're learning more and more that being in proximity to other people. Uh, particularly in indoor environments, is where the most you're the most likely to have transmission occurring. So, being outside, keeping a good distance from other people, um, and also uh, keep in mind that you know the longer you're around other people, the more time, the higher your essentially dose of potential virus is. And so, you know, even if you're you know a, talking to somebody, if you're talking to someone for an hour at you know right at six feet, that's sixty times more than if you're talking to them for a minute there. So you have to think about, you know, the probabilities involved with every, with every interaction we're having. Um, the other take home I would say is we're going to get through this. This isn't, you know, how things are going to be forever. The main takeaway messages I would have are to wear a mask, particularly when you're in an indoor setting. Indoor settings are um, much more likely to lead to transmission than outdoor settings simply due to dilution. Um, if you're wearing a mask, make sure it's fitting properly. You know, if it's not over your nose, it's 
not going to you know do you any good particularly the nose is you know one of the places that you're most likely to have the you know the virus get in and have the infection start and i guess the other takeaway message i think i mentioned before but just to reiterate um without a mask face shields and plexiglass barriers aren't going to do a whole lot but if you have them both together sure it provides another layer but uh, masks are the most important thing you can do Two things that I'd really like to keep in mind is that one is the virus uh, is very patient. It's more patient than us. And so sometimes, you know, we because we can't see that see it, you know, I think we have a tendency to let our guard down. It's important to realize, you know, that you know, those are the times when things are most likely to happen uh, in terms of transmission. The other thing is that, um, and I think this is going to be an issue going forward, is thinking about the inequities that this is going to create uh, for a lot of faculty, staff, and students in terms of you know, people taking on extra childcare responsibilities at home or caring for, you know, folks who've been uh, sick with this disease. And so I think uh, one of the things we're gonna have to think about going forward is how do we handle these inequities and try, you know, as best we can to, you know, help everybody get back on a level, as level of playing field. Thank you for listening to the Michigan Minds Podcast, a production of the University of Michigan. Join the conversation on social media with hashtag YouMishImpact.